Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In September 2015, around the same time Quillette came into existence, Atlantic Magazine published an article arguing that college students are increasingly demanding protection from words and ideas they don't like. That article blossomed into a famous 2018 book titled The Coddling of the American Mind, and the two co-authors, Greg Lukianoff and NYU professor Jonathan Haidt, became widely recognized as experts on the transformations in parenting, education, and technology that have been encouraging children to feel more upset, more vulnerable, and more lonely than the generations that came before. Professor Haidt, my guest this week, has continued his research on how social media, Instagram in particular, is contributing to these problems, especially in regard to girls. Many of his warnings have proven prophetic. Recently, in fact, investigative reporters at the Wall Street Journal have unearthed documents showing how executives at Facebook, which owns Instagram, have focused closely on getting young users hooked on their services. And amid such concerns, it was also reported that Facebook's Instagram unit will be pausing the development of a special service known as Instagram Kids for children under the age of 13. Last week, I discussed these topics with Professor Haidt by Skype video call. Here are excerpts from our conversation. A couple of years ago, I attended a information night for parents at my daughter's middle school. And a guy got up, he was a guest speaker, and he talked about social media usage. And he said something interesting, which at the time I found comforting. He said, look, what happens is kids get into middle school, they become addicted to social media, it becomes unhealthy. But then by the time they get to like grade 9, grade 10, grade 11, they start to discover fulfilling relationships or sports or subjects in school they love or hobbies. And they realize that just trying to get likes on Instagram isn't the be all and end all of life. And I guess maybe I've been lucky as a parent that actually is exactly what happened. Is it possible to tweak social media so that it's a phase for a lot of these kids or that's kind of a social add-on or is there just something inherent about it that for a lot of kids it just becomes this addictive and depressing part of their existence that they can't shake what we're talking about here in this conversation is social media it's not the internet the internet is amazing and it also has some bad things that it does we're not talking about iphones and smartphones those are amazing we love our smartphones they do great things. They also do some bad things. What we're talking about is specifically just social media, which is preeminently Instagram is the main one that kids are using. TikTok is now also extremely important, although not quite as pernicious yet as Instagram. So we're talking especially about Instagram here. And Snapchat is not as damaging because one of the key things is when kids put up content and then wait for others to rate it. That I think is the, the central thing that's, that's a problem here. So we're talking about kids getting on Instagram, especially. And I know that you're right, that for many, that's what happens. So now let's look at it from the other end, which is when we have consumer products that are widely used by kids, we don't just look at the average, but we look to see whether there's harm. 
we have a gigantic wave of depression and anxiety that began right around 2013. Uh, Greg Lukianoff and I saw this happen. It, it hit us in universities around 2014. And when we wrote our Atlantic article in 2015, we couldn't get data on it because we knew that all the mental health centers were full, but there was no published data in 2015. Jean Twenge went out on a limb in her 2017 book and said, well, actually now there is data, just one or two years of it, but there is data showing a huge upsurge around 2014, 2015. And then when Greg and I wrote our book in 2018, we had two more years of data, and now we have three more after that. So we have this gigantic increase in depression, anxiety. It's hit girls especially hard. We don't know why this is. The second thing is there is no alternative hypothesis. No one's come up with another explanation for why this happened right around 2013, which is when Facebook buys Instagram, they implement the new business model. It becomes much more addictive. The kids themselves often say that Instagram is bad for them. The parents generally say that. You don't find a lot of kids or parents who say, oh, thank God for Instagram. I'm so glad I got on it early. The, the, the research, which we'll get into, I hope, soon, the research is not 100%. The research, there are a lot of studies that find no effect, but there's a lot of studies that do find an effect of social media. So I think what we have to do is say, your daughter's made it through. Many, maybe most kids are unharmed by it. But we're not just talking about like 2% here. We're talking about a lot more seem to be harmed by it. Body image problems, depression, anxiety. We know that the suicide rate is way up for boys and girls. The percent increase is bigger for girls. So this is not the sort of thing where we can say, well, anecdotally, most kids make it through fine. We have to say there's the biggest epidemic of terrible teen mental health, including suicide and self-harm that we've ever seen. What's the cause? As I was saying those words and you're reading them back to me, it sounds a lot like my grandmother who said she smoked two packs a day and she felt great. Yeah, that's right. Most people didn't get cancer. So what's the problem? Right. So what's the explanation for why it's hitting girls worse than boys? Think about what healthy development is. And let's focus on middle school, especially. So in the USA, that's generally grades six, seven, eight, ages 11 to 13, something like that. This is the worst time of life for most people. Yeah. This was the worst period of, of, of my life. This is when, you know, kids are just beginning to hit puberty. Elementary school was fun. You play with your friends. And then all of a sudden, everything goes crazy with hormones and insecurity and-, and um, Acne, don't forget the acne. Acne, yeah, that's right. Your, your body's changing. So this is an awful time. And boys' aggression has always been physical. And so social media didn't affect that. In fact, if anything, what happened when you know, all kids got iPhones in the United States and Britain and Canada, uh, you know, it comes out in, 20, in 2007, and by, by 2009, 2010, large numbers are on it. And by 2012, most kids you know, have a smartphone. Boys began moving on to video games before then, but video games don't actually seem to be harmful. Video games are cooperative. My son plays Fortnite. I didn't let him on in sixth grade, but in, in eighth grade, I did just before COVID. And it's a good thing I did. It's how boys collaborate and cooperate and play. So video games aren't bad. Boys aren't that attracted to Instagram. They're not going to spend hours composing selfies. I don't get Instagram. Yeah. I have never understood Instagram. It's very useful for influencers. It's useful for artists and photographers. And it has been incorporated as the main platform for teen girl social life. Your question was, why girls? And I think the answer is first, girls just spend a lot more time on social media than boys do. Psychologists have long distinguished between needs for what is it, agency and relatedness. Boys and men are more into proving themselves agency needs and relatedness is on average more important to girls. So social media really sucked girls in in a way that it didn't do to boys. Secondly, boys' aggression is physical, as I said, and so they're not aggressive on social media because you can't punch anyone physically. But girls' aggression has always been relational. Girls from time immemorial 
are more clued into social networks, social relationships, and they damage other girls' reputations and relationships. And once they all got on social media around 2012, bam, all the time, even at night, even on the weekends, and you can do it anonymously. So social media really took all the worst parts of girl adolescence and multiplied them by 10. Third, girls are more sensitive to being left out. Everyone hates to be left out, but social media, Instagram in particular, you're drowning in photos of all these other kids having a great time and you're not there. And also all the old body image problems that girls have always had. When you and I were kids, the big thing was, it's so terrible that these girls have to compare themselves to all these models in the magazines that are airbrushed. And then later on, it was you know computer manipulation of the photos. And this was thought to be a contributor to, to eating disorders. Well, now it's not models in magazines. It's your friends and they're all prettier than you. It's not just that they're picking the prettiest photos and the internet is picking the prettiest photos of the prettiest. It's that the filters mean that everybody online looks better on average than they do in real life. So for a whole bunch of reasons, social media is just much harder on girls, especially teen girls. I would never tell adult women what they should or shouldn't do. But when we're talking about teens, these are children. They have an epidemic of mental illness that hit in 2013. There is no other explanation. And so I think this is the main culprit, the one we have to look at. So I'm really glad you mentioned video games because people listening to this, it's audio only, but we're looking at each other face to face mm -hmm. by video. And may I say that neither of us seems to have put that filter into action. We're dressed pretty casual. Yeah, we're pretty good at just looking like <laughs> middle-aged men who, who do not do anything for their appearance. So I mentioned this because you can see a door in the back of my office. That door leads to the video game room. And I'd say for the last year and a half during COVID, I would sit here in the office and then I would hear my daughter, sometimes till the wee hours, because we're both night owls. This is my older daughter playing Fortnite with her friends. Oh, good. And she wouldn't know I was here, but also like they were having the best time. Like it was this immersive real-time experience. Yeah. Unlike maybe when you and I played video games when you were a kid, it wasn't just going on shooting each other. Like sometimes they'd break from the game and their characters would have these dance contests. She had on speakerphone and in some ways it was the opposite of Instagram because right. Instagram is you snap an artifact yeah. of an alternate universe version of you where you look perfect and you're basically asking the world, judge me on this. Whereas this Fortnite experience, it was the opposite. It was just people goofing around. They were all shooting each other and getting shot in ridiculous comic book world. Mm -hmm. If they're going to use electronics, how do we get girls and I guess boys too into that world? It's difficult. I hear very few stories of girls on Fortnite. Yeah, I have a group of buddies that I get together with every year, friends from college. And the first time when we were at 30, I, I hosted in Charlottesville when I was a professor at UVA and we played paintball. We'd, none of us had ever done it. And you know, we were in teams and there were some other kids, you know, other people from Charlottesville. And we were hunting each other with guns and shooting each other. And it hurt. It hurts a lot. It hurts, yeah. Uh, which is important. And so it really felt like war. And it was thrilling. I mean, afterwards, we were like, oh my God, <laughs> what was that? There's a room in our heart, which says, you know, in case of war, open door, and you'll find all kinds of evolved programming that prepares you for group versus group violence. And so sports, football, video games, these all tap into it. They're great fun. I have no objection to those things. And, you know, in some ways, the range of experiences my son has playing these fantasy games with his friends is, is just fantastic. But a key thing here is friendships are formed when you do things together, especially for boys. Now, girls can form friendships just by talking. And when you and I were young, probably if you had a sister, you know, girls spent a lot of time on the phone talking. And so if technology connects girls so that they talk, that's great. You know, I, I love technology. I'm not a technophobe at all. 
But rather than girls talking, if what they're doing is projecting outwards and waiting for other girls to judge them, and a lot of them don't have their accounts private, a lot of them are trying to be influencers, that they're having strangers judge them. This is an incredibly bad thing for children to do. And this is, I think, the biggest thing that countries need to do is realize we made a huge mistake in the United States in 1998 when Congress passed the COPPA law, I forget what it stands, Childhood Privacy Protection Act, maybe. And the bill introduced said 16. At 16, you can give away your information. At 16, uh, it wasn't about mental health. It was at 16, a child can give away her information to a corporation. She can make a deal to give away data. And then there was lobbying by some of the, some of the companies, and they teamed up with some child advocates. They got the age lower to 13 at the, in the last minute. It wasn't supposed to be 13. So that's what we're stuck with in the United States from 1998 on. And now it's clear that was a big mistake. Now that we see what the companies do with data, and now that we see that it looks like many of these platforms are depressogenic, I think we need to raise the age to 16, keep kids off of these platforms unless they have explicit parents' permission. Look, you know, if, if, if a parent wants to say, I'm happy to have my 13-year-old have Instagram, fine. I'm not going to tell that parent they can't do it. But the sick thing is that all of us let our kids have Instagram only because all the other kids were on it. That's why, right? I mean, you didn't want your daughters on at 13, did you? No, but it's a network effect. And the idea was, if I'm not on it, then I have no social life, which, which ironically leads to depression and loneliness from a different vector. Exactly. And that's really key. You use the word network effect. And while it is a network effect, the more specific term is a social dilemma, a commons dilemma. So many readers of Quillette will be very familiar with the prisoner's dilemma and all variations of commons dilemma games where every individual is better off putting his sheep out on the common lawn to graze, but when everyone does it, the lawn is dead and we're all worse off. And so I think social media has been that. You know, our kids are on it because everyone else is on Except it. It's, it's sort of a, a reverse dilemma in the sense that I wish Twitter didn't exist, but since it does exist, I have to be on it. Yeah, let's talk about that later because I, I largely got off Twitter about six months ago and I'm so happy I did. Because all these things, there are many harms that these things cause. There are benefits too. You know, I don't want to be extreme on this. There are benefits to all these platforms. But those that have a business model in which you are the product, you're not the customer, you're not the client, you're the product, and therefore the goal is to keep you on as much as they can. And I would ask everyone listening to this, how much do you value your time? Do you have so much time that you don't know what to do with it? Is your time worth zero? If so, then spend your time on these platforms. But most of us, you know, my, my kids have a lot of homework. And if I let them, you know, my, my son is so, he's 15, he's so responsible. He just opened an Instagram account and it's fine. But when he was 11, he wanted one. And I said, no, that, you know, he had a lot more time than other kids to do other things. So anyway, anyway, it's a social dilemma that the companies have put us into. Imagine, just imagine going back to 1998 when the internet was very young and someone said, yeah, it's going to be great. We need to let 13-year-olds on. Oh, and by the way, actually 10 or 11-year-olds, because we're not going to check. There's no way to verify. So we need to let kids of any age on. And guess what? Your kids are going to spend about 20 hours a week, some 30 hours a week um, doing this stuff. And a lot of them are going to become depressed and anxious. What do you think? Good deal. It's a terrible deal, but we got a lot of things wrong about the internet. Yeah. That's only one of them. So let me ask you a little bit about the legislative environment, which leads us into the current news cycle where you have both Facebook and its subsidiary Instagram, both under fire. The Facebook expose focused on documents indicating that Facebook officials were making a systematic effort to make Facebook stickier for very young users to make it more attractive. But as I was reading the article, and sure, I mean, it, it does sound nefarious, 
I almost had some sympathy for Facebook because the numbers they were looking at are extremely low. Uh, young people think Facebook is for grandparents to show photos of Del Boca Vista. Yeah, they don't use Facebook. They use Instagram. Snapchat is, I think, the big competitor. And TikTok. I don't mind TikTok that much because my kids spend a lot of time doing dances for TikTok. And it's, it's athletic and they're having fun. That's right. Those are the three. If you're a Facebook executive and you're listening to this conversation, you're saying... You guys are naive. If I play nice and leave kids alone until they're 16 or 18 or whatever, it just means that there's another social media service that's going to snap them up. Exactly. That's right. They're in a dilemma too. It's called a race to the bottom. And in this case, it's a race to the bottom of childhood. And this is why Facebook is so desperate to launch Facebook for kids because, you know, as Mark Zuckerberg said to when he was uh, testifying before Congress, he was asked about underage use. But Senator, we don't allow children under 13 on our platform. Yeah, you do. I was on the phone with you and I created a fake account for my daughter while I was talking to you. They don't really check. They can't really. I mean, look, they could. I mean, they actually know when women are pregnant based on things they say and do. I mean, they, they could tell if someone's under 13, probably, but they don't. My kids say nobody gets booted off uh, in middle school way before 13. So sure, you could have sympathy for them or you could solve the dilemma for them. How about this? Rather than each one saying, oh, you know, if I back off, if I don't go after the 10-year-olds, then TikTok's going to get them all. How about this? We say you can't get on until you're 16 without parents' permission. Oh, and guess what? You actually have to age verify. So this is, I think, the biggest thing we can do. It would be nice if we had an internet that anyone can use anonymously. And there are parts where, of course, you can. Most of it, you can. But there are certain areas. Oh, let's take banking, where we realize, you know what? You can't just let people open bank accounts anonymously. You have know your customer laws. There's so much money laundering and, and, and other criminal uses. You can't open a bank account unless you show that you're a person. On Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, you can use fake names. But how about if we had like blue check marks for everyone uh, on any major platform, whether it be by size or, or by childhood use or something, in order to open an account to post, you have to actually prove that you're a real person in a particular country and that you're over a certain age. Uh, this would solve so many of the problems. Right now, you and I are talking about the, you know, one of the two biggest problems. I think the two biggest are teen mental health, and the other is democracy and political dysfunction. That also would be hugely benefited by identity verification. And just to be clear, you can still post with a fake name. I'm not saying you, you have to post with your real name. But in order to open an account, I think it's essential that you show some nonprofit, some for-profit, some will figure out a way to do this. You basically have to show that you're a real person. And if we don't do this in the next couple of years, I just heard a podcast with Tristan Harris, um, AI, GPT-3 are moving so fast. Right now, we're all flooded by fake stuff and manipulative stuff and Russian trolls have an easy time of it. If we don't do identity verification fairly soon, we're going to be so buried in a few years, it'll be too late. So just, I love the fact that you think my listeners are so smart that they just, they all know what GPT-3 is. GPT-3 is artificial language creation, eerily accurate. That's right. Actually, it could be doing this interview right now and you'd have no idea. <laughs> almost, almost. You know, you can say to GPT-3, write me an essay in the style of John Haidt or, you know, or Jordan Peterson, or write me a travel guide to Tuscany in the style of Oscar Wilde. And it'll do it. And it'll do a pretty good job of it. And so in a couple of years, in a couple of years, you can say, create 23 websites that look like news sites from all across America, give them a very professional look and fill them with articles about how vaccines are all a fake and a fraud. And it'll do it. You and I are talking about one of the five Wall Street Journal articles, the one that focused on Instagram, but others focused on democracy disruption, which Facebook is combating, but it's an unwinnable fight. It's about to get a lot harder. 
If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. As I was reading through the Wall Street Journal report on Facebook, there was a lot of stuff in there about privacy, what big companies are doing with our data. To a certain extent, have we been missing the big problem? Because when you talk about depression, that's typically not the thing they talk about. They talk more about advertisers having your data and people snooping. In a sense, have we been maybe over-focusing on some of the privacy concerns and under-focusing on the problem that's hiding in plain sight? Well, I think there are so many problems. The way to look at it is this, I think. Humans are ultra-social creatures, and for hundreds of thousands of years, the sociality was largely, you know, sitting around the campfire talking and telling stories at night. And we're very interested in other groups. We trade stories and we interact with other groups. And that's the way it was. And then things begin to speed up. We get roads and we get postal services and we get telephones. And so things are speeding up. And in general, connecting people is good. And sometimes there are problems. You know, when the printing press comes in, uh, you get a lot of political instability in Europe because now the information flow is radically changed by the printing press. You get decades of war. So the long history is that connection is generally good. You know, when you and I were kids, there was a thing called long distance. You had to pay to talk to someone. Now everything's free. In general, that should be good. Uh, but my argument that I developed with Tobias Rose Stockwell in an Atlantic article called The Dark Psychology of Social Networks, and I'm working up now into a book called Life After Babel, is that it's not the internet, it's not technology per se, it's connecting people in a certain way that you put things out there to perform in order to get points for yourself. People make ratings and comments, not honestly, but because they're trying to get points for themselves. And the whole thing is one giant performative clusterfuck that keeps everyone engaged, which brings people as product to the advertisers. But what does it do to us? Um, it, this is why everybody is now walking on eggshells. You didn't hear that phrase in 2011, uh, 2012. But by 2015, when everything got weird in universities, that's what's happening. We're all walking on eggshells because anything you say and do in, in writing, you know, in writing on like on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere, can and will be taken out of context and held up for public ridicule and a mob will be called in to, to shame you. This is a terrible way to live. You mentioned at one point, I forget if it was in our conversation or in print, these negative effects on emotional affect it's worse in left-wing environments than, than right-wing environments. And this is true even of kids. We're not just talking about 20-something activists on Twitter. We're actually talking about kids who most of their content doesn't consist of political stuff. How does the political valence translate to effects on left and right? 
so Zach Goldberg is or was still, I think still is a grad student at I think Georgia State in psychology, I believe. He was one of the first people studying the Great Awakening. And he produced a number of analyses of this weird change that happened to white people on the left around 2015. That fits with the story that Greg Lukianoff and I are telling. It's something weird. It was like there was a disturbance in the force around 2014, 2015. And we first felt it. It first broke through on university campuses. And this precedes Donald Trump, just to be clear. That's right. In fact, there would be no Donald Trump without this great awakening. We get this bizarre behavior concentrated in politically homogeneous groups that are politically homogeneous on the left. And look, I'm a social psychologist. I study morality. If you get a bunch of conservatives concentrated, you get equally wacky and potentially violent behavior too. So I'm a liberal. I used to not call myself that, but I now identify as a liberal, meaning I love the liberal tradition. And boy, have we seen an eruption of illiberalism on the far left and the far right. And why did that happen? Well, around 2015, something weird happened. And what Zach Goldberg noticed is that on attitudes about race, gender, and immigration, White people on the left, not black people, white people on the left suddenly shifted far left, even to the left of black people. And you see this in the GSS data, General Social Survey. You see it in Pew data. You then see this happening, say, in newsrooms. So around 2018, the New York Times begins changing. Oh, a recent study, Musa Al-Garbi and David Rosado, a bunch of others, they found that if you just look at word frequency in the New York Times and many other publications, all kinds of words around racism and sexism, all those words suddenly go shooting upwards around 2015. So something happens to people on the left. And I don't think that would have happened if it wasn't for Twitter and, and social media. It really hyper-energizes certain dynamics of political performance and calling out. And it it amplifies the extremes. Now, obviously on the right, you've seen an explosion of absolutely bizarre conspiracy theories that again, couldn't have happened without Twitter and Gab and other sites. So both sides are going insane in ways that are really frightening. Uh, but to bring this back to the mental health issue, what also has been discovered, Zach published this, he put out this Twitter thread like earlier this year, I can't remember when, you know, 10 months ago or something, that he noticed there was a Pew study done very at the beginning of COVID, like late March of 2020, they collected data. And the question was, Oh, actually, I'm going to find it and I'll guide readers to it. So if you go to thecoddling.com, that's the website for my book with Greg, go to Better Mental Health. There, It'll be on thecoddling.com. And then you go to Solutions Better Mental Health. I'll put a link to our, our recent blog posts. And we redid one of Zach's graphs to make it much clearer. And what you see, there's a three-way interaction. The Q question was, has a doctor or mental health professional ever told you that you have a mental health problem? Yes or no? And you'll see the graph, it is quite astonishing. The second graph on the question of has a doctor or healthcare provider ever told you that you have a mental health condition? There is an age effect. So older people, it's very, very low, but for younger people, it's much higher. There's a sex effect for women, it's higher than men. And there's a political effect for, for liberals, it's higher than conservatives. But there's a three-way interaction in which for liberal young women, the percentage saying yes is 54%, literally the majority. For almost everybody else, it's like between 10 and 20%. But for young liberal white women, and I should say these effects are overwhelmingly for white, not for black or Hispanic, but for young white women, literally the majority of those on the left say that they've been diagnosed with a mental health condition. And I think, I can't prove this, but I think the reason is if you are a young liberal white woman, your social media is consistently around a story about how everything is oppression, how you're gonna be paid 78 cents on the dollar, you have a one in four chance of being raped in college. None of these things are true. These are social science myths that are, you know, it's impossible to get rid of, 
you're drowning in stuff about how terrible everything is. How... Sorry, I had sorry. I would argue that there's also the other side, which is you're constantly told you're garbage. You know, how many articles have we seen in the last year or two? Like white women are part of this problem. White women are part of that problem. Yeah. Uh, white women specifically being blamed for the Trump phenomenon. That's right. White women being blamed for being bad feminists because they don't want to share a bathroom with certain kinds of people. The same day we're having this conversation, the American Booksellers Association tweeted out an anti-racism workshop that asks the question, quote, what's up with white women unpacking sexism and white privilege in pursuit of racial justice? And there's, there's an actual cartoon picture of a crying white woman with another word bubble that says, what's up with white women, as if they're just like this collective kvetch that everyone hates. This is the American Booksellers Association. There's no middle ground. They're either at horrifying risk, and on the other hand, they're also super privileged people who are the reason that there's all this injustice in the world. And something I've noticed as I've been speaking at high schools is that the boys are generally beat on, uh, you know, the white males are generally beat on as you know, you're the cause of all the problems, but they almost never embrace wokeness. They just learn to keep quiet and they see it with resentment. And this makes them recruitable by far right and neo-Nazi Or side. laugh it off. Or, yes, yes, that's right. Part of my brand on Twitter is I, I laugh at a lot of this stuff. But I, I think for reasons of social conditioning or evolutionary biology, you know, you're the expert there. Women don't seem to be able to just laugh it off with a snarky comment in the way someone like I do it. And I don't know the reason for that. Men are more socially clueless, which is in this case to their benefit, because at a time when social pressure and social evaluation is ramped up to insane degrees, far beyond human tolerance for it, I think the boys often tune out. My boy is a sophomore. My son is a sophomore at Brooklyn Tech High School in New York City. And he has his first truly woke class. There's been bits of wokeness here and there in his education in New York City public schools. But now a couple of his classes, the teachers are truly woke. And now he's learning like, okay, you just shut up. But he's learning how, you know, how can I how can I actually not lie? How can I actually say what I believe without triggering a really bad reaction from the teacher? But I think that for some reason, the girls, it's much more important for them, I think, to be liked, to, to fit in. They're less likely to rebel. Part of it might be there's a psychological term reactance. When you tell people, oh, you can't do that. You can't do something. Boys are more likely to say, oh, really? Screw you. I'm doing it. Uh, just to be obnoxious, and, and girls are less likely. Reactance is stronger in boys than girls. And so I think some of the beatings that kids take from wokeness, it rarely converts boys, but I think uh, for some reason, I think girls are more likely to buy into it. Unfortunately, sometimes you see among the boys, I don't maybe call it overreactance, when they're with people they trust, like in a fraternity type situation, they kind of go overboard in indulging in behavior that they know is stigmatized and using language that they know is stigmatized to shock or to bond with each other. Say, oh, look that's how stupid right. this is. And then a video recording of that comes out. And, exactly. Um, no, that's right. That's what a lot of this is, is there's a sort of a normal boy stupidity and risk taking combined with if you put taboos on them, some kids are going to want to say, well, you know, it's a taboo. I'm going to violate it. Oh, yeah. You're going to violate it in the age of social media when it's going to live forever and you'll never get a job again. Too bad. So your website is called The Coddling? Thecoddling.com. It's the website for Greg Lukianoff and my book. The Coddling of the American Mind, which obviously a classic book. Right. Although I got to say, The Coddling sounds like a failed Stephen King film. Yes, I know. We like we play that up. It does sound like a horror movie. And that's you know kind of what it felt <laughs> like from within. It really was like... You know, everything was like, I love being a professor and it was so much fun until around 2014. And then it was like dawn of the dead, like weird stuff started happening. It wasn't there in 2012. And then all of a sudden, 2014, weird stuff starts happening. Okay. When you say weird stuff started happening, I know that's true of the United States and Canada too. It's where I live. This stuff we're talking about in terms of depression, in terms of girls, in terms of social media use, 
Tell me about the state of the data internationally. Sure. So there are two big empirical areas of study. One is, is there an increase in mental health problems? And the other is, if so, is that related in some identifiable way to social media? So if listeners go to thecoddling.com solutions, better mental health, we have links to a, an open source Google document where we've been collecting, uh, this is Gene Twenge and I now have, have uh, collected all the evidence we can find. And uh, it's, not, it's happening not just in the US, it's happening identically in Canada and the UK. Uh, it's happening in Australia, New Zealand, although at a delay, but it's not happening in all countries. So in Spain and other European countries, there has not been like a linear increase. So in terms of depression, anxiety, it's happening all over the Anglosphere, all over the English speaking countries in very similar ways, but it's not necessarily global in terms of depression, anxiety. But here was the, here was the discovery. Someone from New Zealand sent me data from PISA. So PISA is the, oh, what does this stand for? Anyway, it's the, it's the global- the school testing. Yeah, it's, that's right. It's the only global test of academic achievement. So we can track math performance, things like that all around the world. Embedded in you know, hundreds of questions about academic performance are six questions on loneliness at school including, you know, one is like, I feel lonely at school and uh, I feel like I belong, right? I feel like I don't belong. So there's six questions like, and someone in New Zealand pointed out to me that look at the data in New Zealand. It looks like it's gone up after 2012. It's collected every three or four years. And so Gene Twang and I dug into the data and we found that actually in 35 out of 36 countries, loneliness at school has gone up. It was stable from 2003 through 2012, but then in the two administrations, I think it's 2015, 2018, um, it has gone up. Now it's not huge, but it's there in 35 out of 36 countries. Uh, it's not necessarily consistent in East Asia, but in Eastern Europe, Western Europe, North America, uh, one Latin American country, it has gone up. And so we do know something's going on globally. So that's the first thing. There clearly is a mental health problem with depression, anxiety, suicide in all of the English speaking countries. There is a global thing going on at school with school loneliness. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing is though, okay, but why? The timing is perfect for social media because you know the smartphone comes out in 2007, but most teens don't have one. By 2009, 2010, they're beginning to get them, but, but it's only by 2012, 2013 that they're on social media every day. And it's also in 2012 that Facebook buys Instagram and imposes its new business model, which is really all about getting the product to stay on as long as possible. So that's the first thing is, is the timing works out perfectly, but that's circumstantial. That's not clear evidence. You can't convict someone based on circumstantial evidence. So if listeners go to thecoddling.com solutions, better social media, Gene Twenge and I, we have collected all the studies we can find, and I can summarize it like this. We've got literally hundreds of studies that have been done. They're correlational studies that just look at how much time people say they spend on social media. And those almost always find a correlation, but it's very small. So it's suggestive, but it's relatively small. Um, and that's what a lot of the debate is on. The experiments, there are about 15 or so true experiments where people were randomly assigned. These are not kids. These are now young adults or adults. Uh, randomly assigned to get off social media for you know for a couple of weeks or a month, and those the great majority of those did find benefits to mental health. So that's pretty powerful. If you have random assignment experiments that generally find an effect, that is evidence of causation. But here's here's the sticking point. There are a number of people who've been studying this issue far longer than I have, and a lot of them say there's nothing there. The correlations are tiny. This doesn't prove that social media is to blame. But my argument is. There's a dose response element here. That is, if we study Instagram like sugar and we say, you know, kids who consume a little sugar, it's fine. But if you have huge amounts of sugar, it's bad for you. If you use that model, then what you find is you find correlations, but they're small. 
between how much social media kids consume and bad mental health, but it's small. But I say social media is not primarily a dose response thing. It's not like sugar or, or, or tobacco. It's as you and I were talking about, it's a network effect. And so, for example, one study of British kids found that before 2012, they spent, I forget how many hours visiting each other. They actually went to each other's homes. Kids used to see each other, they'd play together. This is, I think we're talking about 11, 12 year old kids. I can't remember what age they looked at, but kids used to actually visit each other. And then after 2012, 2013, the hours spent per week visiting each other or going anywhere, doing anything plummets because you're always on your phone. And you know, when I, I gave a talk in my old um, high school and the, the principal said, the problem is so severe and that it's, it's built in by the time they come in, it, they're already hooked, they're all hooked. They spend all their time on their devices. And that's true by the time they get here in ninth grade. Then I gave a talk in my middle school, the middle school I went to in Scarsdale, New York. And I talked with the principal there. She said the same thing. By the time they come to us in sixth grade, it's too late. They're already spending all their time on their devices. We can't get them off. And so I think that's what happened around 2012, 2013. It's not that they started consuming so much that as individuals, they got sick. It's that teen social life, which used to involve actually getting together and doing things, is now about we all are on Instagram rating each other's photos and saying, oh, you look so wonderful. Oh, this is so great. Oh, it's so beautiful. And if that's the way you spend your childhood, you don't really make real friends and you end up being lonely at school because everyone's on their devices all the time. It's also dishonest. There's that famous, I don't know if you watch the, the show Superstore, where one of the characters is, is looking at Instagram and he says, oh my God, that bitch, I can't believe. And then at the end, he clicks like, because <laughs> even after you rant about how much you hate the person politically, you're obligated to click like on the photo. That's right. Young people are learning to be incredibly dishonest. They're learning to live in this performative space where there's no authenticity and it's all lies. And now a commercial message from Blinkist. If you're like me, you have a passion for self-improvement. Unfortunately, when it comes to, say, getting fit or eating right or dressing better, self-improvement is really difficult. But not when it comes to learning new things and broadening your horizons especially when you're armed with the Blinkist app. Blinkist takes nonfiction book titles, pulls out the key takeaways, and puts them into text and audio explainers called Blinks that give you the most important information in just 15 minutes. Use Blinks to learn about topics such as philosophy, history, and science, or dive into psychology, health and nutrition, or personal growth. You've got thousands of titles and 27 categories of the world's best knowledge to choose from. Some of the most popular titles, for instance, are A Short History of Brexit, The Future of Capitalism, and Letters from a Stoic. And if you're more of a podcast person, they have you covered with blinks for podcasts called shortcasts. These two are packed into powerful 15-minute reads or listens, all in one app so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette, with two L's and two T's, to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. I know that my 
my middle daughter had an amazing time at summer camp. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, that one of the very first things they did at summer camp was they took away their phone. They take away the cell phones. That's right. You have to. She, yeah. she had a great time. And I think part of her knows that one of the reasons she had a great time was, was because of that. And I picked her up from camp and then I gave her the phone. and It was like giving drugs to a junkie. She was like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yep. Right back on it. Well, well, she spent 20 minutes looking at Instagram and uh, I was pretty proud of her. After 20 minutes, she put the phone down and said, hmm, I thought there'd be better stuff. Okay. Great. That was kind of progress to me. Uh, so anyways, I'm very happy about that. But I don't know if this is just a hipster thing. Kids are starting to use disposable film cameras. Oh, wow. And the big trend. Yeah. And I don't know if this is happening in the United States or it's a Canadian thing. By the way, just to here in Canada, we do have digital technology. <laughs> well, you can you can steal cable from us. Can you give me the password for the US Wi-Fi? <laughs> but yeah. they'll be at a party. I think they got sick of taking a photo of, of somebody and everyone crowded around and says, show it to me. And then they had to take the photo 50 times over so everyone looked great. This dispose it, it costs more, obviously, to get film developed and it's a pain in the ass and you have to go to Walmart. But I noticed that they like it because they take the picture and someone says, oh, did, was I blinking? Mm. And it's like, well, we'll find out in a week. And they like that. Interesting. Are kids smart enough to self-medicate or, or I guess the opposite, go on the wagon when it comes to this stuff? So the kids are definitely smart enough. This is one thing that I've been really impressed with about Gen Z. So Greg and I have been speaking about our book and our article for many years. We've spoken to a lot of schools and we never get students saying, yo, you're, you're attacking us. You're wrong. They actually say, yeah, you're right. You're right. We're addicted to these phones. We're overprotected. We don't want to be. They are pretty, pretty smart about the situation and, and what's going on. And in surveys where you ask them what's the problem, the, the, the girls do mostly point to Instagram. There's a British study that found this. So the kids know what's going on. Now, can they get out of it? Um, generally not because it's a trap. I mean, it, you know, in ancient Greece and Rome, what would they do? They wouldn't chop off your head, they'd banish you. And that's death. And in fact, it's actually a very risky thing to take away a kid's phone, you know, because that if a kid's suicidal and you take away their phone, that off that sometimes will push them to suicide because that's social death. So I think they're in a trap. And the main trap is not the video games or the email or the texting. The main trap, I think, is the social media sites. And that's why I think it's so important to break the trap, give parents back the authority to say that if your kid is below 16, the parent actually gets to decide. And the default is no. The default is no, you can't get on until you're 16 unless your parent lets you on and takes responsibility for what you, for what you post. We have to break the trap. And this is why I'm especially, I mean, I don't get angry easily, but I do, as a parent, I am angry at Facebook, Instagram, because they did this. This is their business model. They make no effort even to get rid of underage uh, users, even below 13, and 13 is too young. So we've got to help them. We've got to, typically in the economics literature, the only solution to a social dilemma is some sort of central regulation. It's often very difficult for individuals to get out if they can't coordinate uh, in, in some way. So I think we have to help them. The working title for your new book is Life After Babel. Explain that to me. So Babel is this amazing short little story in Genesis. Uh, so at, you know, after the flood and almost everybody dies and humans are coming back and they spread out on the plain of Shinar and they decide to build a, a great city with a great tower that will reach unto heaven. And God is offended by their hubris uh, because they, in part they're saying, we're going to build this tower so we can't be wiped out ever again. We're going to be like gods. And God comes down and he says, look, they are one people, they have all one language, and this, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. And then people can't understand each other and humans are cast out and they're 
incompetent, they're not powerful anymore. So basically, you know, I love metaphors. I'm an intuitionist. I think we can't really understand anything complicated unless we have a good metaphor. I think Babel is a fantastic metaphor. We built back the tower. We built roads and postal services and telephone and telegraph. We got incredibly powerful. We even built Google Translate so we could we can literally talk to each other across different languages now. So, you know, take that God, we're back. Well, guess what? God didn't have to knock it down. You know, I think Facebook and Twitter knocked it down uh, around 2012 when they introduced the like button, the retweet button, uh, business models that basically kept us all hooked, uh, hooked on outrage. It's, it's call out culture. It's walking on eggshells. It's dishonesty. It's performance. And it wasn't that way in 2010, 2011, but it really was clear by 2014, 2015. So my argument is the Tower of Babel fell around 2015. We lost the ability to understand each other. Academic research is compromised. We can't investigate clear hypotheses like about gender gaps and things like that. Uh, all sorts of issues about race, immigration. Um, you know, you'll be crucified if you try to publish findings or if you just tweet findings, that's the amazing thing. Steven Pinker was, you know, there was a cancellation against, his, against him based on the fact that he tweeted several studies. Uh, uh, and I cannot let this opportunity pass to discuss the example of the guy who, following the, the riots in various American cities, mid to late 2020. David Shore, yes, famous case. And he said, hey, by the way, you know, progressive Democrat here, just noting that when there's sort of violent race-related riots in American cities, it tends to hurt Democrats yep. at the ballot box. As peer-reviewed studies by a famed African-American researcher has demonstrated. Yeah. Omar Wasau, yes. I think he lost his job. He was fired. Yeah, he was fired for tweeting that. That's right. Yeah. So this is the point. Uh, this is Babel. This is crazy. But what this means is that it's a time when we cannot find truth. We cannot think well together. Um, I'm a big fan of John Stuart Mill uh, at Heterodox Academy. We put out an edition, All Minus One. It's an edition. I have that edition. I got it at the Heterodox Academy conference, I think, three years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. At the that's right. It was my first met you, I think. Yeah, that's It's right. a beautiful edition. Yeah, it's illustrated. So that's the second chapter of On Liberty is the greatest thing ever written. It's not just on free speech. It's on the nature of knowledge production and what it is to get smart. You can't be smart if you shoot your critics. You can't be smart if you, if you won't listen to any criticism. And so that's my argument is that social media made us collectively stupid. I have a whole chapter called structural stupidity. You know, the Flynn effect, people are getting smarter over time, but we have the social media effect. Groups are getting stupider and stupider. So that's what the book is about, is about how the social media environment, the technological environment, knocked over our ability to think together. It severely damaged the universities, journalism. Uh, Jonathan Rauch has an incredible book called The Constitution of Knowledge. Uh, we can't know things anymore. We can't find things anymore. So we are like the humans in the weeks or months after Babel. We're wandering around blind, yelling and screaming. Jonathan Haidt is social psychologist at NYU's Stern School of Business and also the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. You can find out more about it at thecoddling.com. Thanks so much. My pleasure, John. Good luck to you and Quillette. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.